Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our marriage class, Sunday, June 16th, special day in the history of Wallace Presbyterian. After the worship service, we have a call congregational meeting to uh, form a search committee for the next pastor. So that's very exciting that God brought us to this point. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look this morning after I pray at some particulars on conflict resolution in marriage, and then we're going to go general. We'll start particularly with marriage, and then we'll go general. It'll take us a number of weeks to go over the material, but, but um, I'm convinced even though you may not be married, the principles we're going to look at about conflict resolution will apply in your life broadly and across the board. So bear with us as we look specifically at marriage to begin with, and then we'll, we will uh, broaden out. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we worship you, we delight in you, we hail you and proclaim you as our God, the only God, faithful, holy, true, unchanging, eternal, and how you long to reveal yourself to us. You want to be known. We, you have made for yourself, for your glory. You want us to know you, to commune with you, to fellowship with you, that we might bring glory and honor to you, giving you the praise, obedience, and glory that you deserve. Thank you that that is possible through Christ, your Son, who is exact representation of your nature, the radiance of your glory. To know Jesus is to know you. To see Jesus is to see you. So, Lord Jesus, for your presence, by your Spirit, we thank you. We are humbled that you would condescend to save us. We're humbled that you humble yourself to come into our mess, our junk, in order that you might make us like yourself and also work in us that grace that makes our relationships reveal the glory of the oneness and love and unity you have with each other. Uh, give this church this morning that unity, oneness, love, other-centeredness, and humility. And as we look at conflict resolution, we honor you as the one who has resolved the ultimate conflict between sinners and yourself, a holy God. You did that through the cross, through Christ. And we know, therefore, you are utterly committed to working the grace in us of resolving our conflicts. So teach us, help us, uh, enliven our hearts, enlighten our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So taking a look at the handout, we're going to start specifically on marriage and then broad out a little bit more broadly. Uh, these are questions that I ask couples when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling. Over what have you had conflict? So married couples or singles for that matter, over what do people have Conflict. What are the big three in marriage? Finances. Money. Go ahead, somebody say it. In laws. And the other one? Sex. Sex. Those are the typical big three. Okay? What are some other things that people have conflict over? Children. Yeah, uh, parenting styles. And specifically on that, how do we educate them? How do we discipline them? How do we educate? Right? Okay, good. What are some other things people have conflict over? Maybe even in single relationships. Okay. Methodology, let's call that. How about problem solving? How do we go about problem solving? Did I get an amen in this corner? Yeah, I was going to say, like, the style with which you discuss disagreements. Okay. Communication. 
Good. Communication styles, I think I shared with you earlier in the class that uh, in, or early on in our marriage when Janice and I would have a disagreement <clears throat> and, and um, I realized I was losing. I would begin, I would get off issue and I would attack her way of communicating with me. Isn't that awful? Now, let's suppose, first of all, what should I do if I realize I'm losing? What should I do? Run. <laughs> Run. <laughs> what should I do? Just apologize, admit, and hear her out, and take defeat like a big boy. Let's, so, good. So secondly, what should I do if I really do have a concern about the way she's communicating with me? What should I do? In the heat of this discussion, in the heat of the argument, what would you do? What would be the most helpful, fruitful, humble thing to do? Push pause on that. Go ahead and lose the argument and determine that a later time when emotions have um, calmed down, enter into a discussion about how we communicate with each other. Do it another time. That's not the time to do it. I'm, so I'm just confessing to you that was a... That was a defense mechanism to not want to admit that I was losing and change the subject. And it's just being a big baby, like being a teenager. Okay, so what else, What do people have conflict over? Is that good tease out some answers to that question? Anything else? <clears throat> what is your default mode when you don't get your own way? And why is that an important question? Are you always going to get your way in your marriage? No. Should you know the inclination of your heart, the leaning of your heart, the proclivity of your personality, when you don't get your own way, what are you most prone to do? So just not, don't talk about yourself, but talk about what you've seen in other people. <laughs> What's, what do other people tend to do when they don't get their own way? <laughs> See, you don't have to be uh, too personal in here. What do people tend to do when they don't get their own way? Huh? Defend. Go on the defense. Pull out the swords. Good. Get defensive. Go along grudgingly. Go along with a grudge. Good. And and look, what is typically going to happen to that grudge if it's not dealt with? It will reemerge. It'll get stuffed. In a, what my uh, professor at Westminster Seminary, John Butler, called a gunny sack, it'll get stuffed in there, and if enough grudges get stuffed in there, finally there's this breaking point where people pour it all out. Okay, go along with a grudge. What's another? Uh, what's another default move when you don't get your own way? A little bit louder. Retreat. retreat, yeah, retreat, clam up. A variation of that is change the subject. Pretend you didn't hear, right? So if I'm being asked to do something that I don't want to do, I'll f find a subtle way to dodge it. Oh, it's time to go play basketball. Yeah, so, right, so retreat, clam up, attack. What, are, what, what do you like when you don't get your own way? Good, good thing to know, because in a fallen world, you're not always going to get your own way. Any, any other thoughts? Nate? I think there's a flip side to that coin as well. Um, 
So we have, I have friends, and this is really not us, we have friends. <laughs> and in, in my opinion, when they disagree, there's a, like, a thought of, it's more important that we stay on the same page than actually deal with some issues sometimes. And so you can just kind of say, for the sake of, for the sake of peace, we'll just do what you want. And then that's really actually not the best. So acquiesce, you mean? Yeah. And then, you know, if you have kids, then sometimes, like, the fact that you might have a disagreement, just if one person, you might think that the other person's, um, what, what it is that they want to get, that, that's not actually best for the kids, but for the sake of the marriage, you're like, well, we're not even going to, like, go through discussing that because we might disagree. Good. And so it's the opposite of, like, two people saying, well, we're, we each want our way. It's like, you, you don't even discuss it because it's like, we don't want to have any type of disagreement. Good. And we'll get to that when we get to our conflict resolution box. Well, let's move down the list. What are some things you personally struggle with? That's a question I ask so that I want the other person in the marriage relationship to know that. Do you have any unresolved issues right now? What would be the point of going through pre-marriage counseling and there's this underlying issue they've never dealt with? So that's a question that I ask when the couple gets together. That's one of the first questions I ask. How are you doing right now? Is there anything we need to talk about? And occasionally there's an issue and that's all we talk about during that issue. Okay. Are you staying pure? That's another question they ask. Are you staying pure? Are you staying pure? What style of conflict resolution did you grow up witnessing? Let's just do a poll. Um, how many of you, how many of you, how do we do this? How many of you um, would say you witnessed growing up excellent conflict resolution on uh, your parents? Just show of hands. Excellent conflict resolution. If your parents are in the room, you don't have to answer that. No one grew up witnessing excellent conflict. Isn't that telling? I didn't either. I didn't either. I didn't see it. Consequently, I started my marriage as a lousy conflict resolver. Lousy. It's hurt, hurt our relationship. Not Jana. She's, she's good at it. Okay, so we have a whole lot of people down here. All right, how many of you saw it attempted but not real well? Anybody put it at five? Okay. A few more hands. So m most of us would say we're, we're down here. Is it? Marty? I don't remember witnessing conflict. Okay, so that, that sort of brings us back to what Nate was saying last week. And that is, um, we owe it to our kids to not always, not always get behind a closed door to, to discuss things when we aren't agreed, but to, but to um, resolve conflict when we have it in front of our kids so that we show them what it looks like. Okay. Some things you need to take behind a closed door. Other times we need to resolve it so we model it. So maybe your folks never had conflict. That would be an amazing thing. <laughs> Probably unlikely, but... And how about this question? How do you think Satan wants to destroy the bond of your friendship or the bond of your relationship, your marriage? How does he want to destroy it? So if you're in a Christian marriage, you can be sure of this. You woke up this morning and Satan is trying to destroy your marriage. Why does he hate it? It's, it really, don't take it personally. And who does he hate? He hates Christ. And you doing marriage well reveals the glory of the way Jesus reveals the way Jesus loves his church. So Satan is scheming now to destroy your marriage and mine. And it's not a Steven Spielberg style, you know, where he shows up looking like some big, scary, goofy thing. It's much more subtle than that, right? Much more subtle. It usually starts with lies, deptions, and accusations. Those are all part of this name. Okay, just some things to think about. 
So one of my mentors at Westminster Seminary, who was the director at CCEF and West uh, Philadelphia, the Christian Counseling Educational Foundation, actually one of the significant names of that ministry, D David Pallison. How many of you read books by David Pallison? David went to be with the Lord this last week. Very sad, but what a phenomenal contributor, a steward of his gifts. Bless the church. Uh, John Bettler described teaching about marriage and relationships that there's typically four phases that you go through. First phase is romance. It's the nice phase where you don't want to do anything to upset each other. Right? You're getting to know each other. You're going to put your best foot forward. And when our, when our oldest son brought a wonderful Christian gal into our home that he started dating, we saw this dramatic change. All of a sudden, he's using his napkin, his hands are in his lap puts the fork down, like, who is this guy? We've never seen this guy before. It was so obvious he was putting his best foot forward. But anyway, it was hilarious. So that's the romance face. No, be who you are. Show them what you really like. If you're a slob, she needs to know it. She needs to know it. <laughs> then you get conflict. Conflict comes when you wake up one day and realize you didn't marry yourself. Isn't that hilarious? I just think that's so funny. And it's so true. Because we really want the other person to be like us. Typically. Three is resolution. Where you learn to work together. You're pulled together learning to solve some of these problems. And that then produces intimacy. That deep and abiding trust that says we're going to make it. So another way of looking at that. And we'll tease this out now. And the key principles to embrace for healthy conflict resolution is that number one, conflict is inevitable. We live in a fallen world. We're all fallen. No one's going to get it right all the time. Nobody told me that before I got married. I didn't know that about myself. I was far more proud than I realized and far less what than I realized. Far less humble than I realized. So we entered marriage. I'm thinking she needs to be like me. The share it way is the best way to do everything. And I, was, I didn't like conflict. In fact, the home I grew up in, its effect on me was to be a pleaser. I'll more about that when we get to the conflict resolution box. Conflict inevitable. One of the questions I ask couples, uh, well, it's the first question, is what if you had conflict ever? If they say nothing, there's trouble. You've got to have. So I know a guy, a Christian counselor in Harrisonburg, Virginia, when he does premarriage counseling, he, he sets them up. He gets them into a fight because he wants to see them disagree. He does. If they've not had conflict, he makes sure they do right in his counseling office. John Keebler. All right. So it's inevitable. Should have entered marriage that way. Should have expected it. Don't let it take you by surprise. Number two, conflict was ordained, was ordained by God to make the relationship better. It shows you how much you need the Lord. It shows us our need to view the world from the other person's point of view. It makes a relationship stronger once resolved. So let's diagram this. You start out in your relationship, and all of a sudden you have conflict. If it's not acknowledged, if it's ignored, if it's stuffed, it will eventually destroy the relationship. Right? It's the stuffing and all this bitterness grows up. That's Why does Hebrews 13 say, don't let a root of bitterness develop in your heart? Because it will ultimately kill the relationship. Somebody defined bitterness as you, you uh, swallow poison and hope the other person dies. 
That's bitterness. It does no one any good, but it only kills you. So unresolved conflict, terrible. Poorly resolved conflict, and the relationship sort of limps along at best. But well-resolved conflict makes this relationship stronger. Just like if you break a bone in your arm here, you break that bone, God has made the body so that what calcifies at that bone is actually the strongest place in that bone now. A broken bone that's healed, where God has allowed the body to uh, heal that bone, that's stronger than any other place in the bone. So God uses conflict to make the relationship stronger. How many of you would testify? Our relationship is better for having resolved our conflicts well. Trial and error. I think you would, most of us would testify to that. Alright, so let me push pause before we go on to the conflict resolution box and see if anybody wants to weigh in. Just jump, because I can't see your hands. Just speak up if you'd like to make any comments at this point. Okay, so what we have here is called a conflict resolution box, and it's designed to tease out your style of resolving conflict. And it works on two things. It works on your view of relationship, high and low, and it, it works on your willingness to take risk, low and high. Okay? So that creates four possibilities. Someone who is not a risk taker, but has a very high view of relationship, will be a pleaser, all things being equal. Someone who is a low risk taker and does not have a high view of relationship will ignore it, stuff it, absolutely fail to deal with it. Someone who's a high risk taker but not doesn't have a high view of relationship becomes a controller, kind of a bully. They don't care what you think of them. They just, they boom, go in there and get what they want. And then the Bible calls us to view relationships in a very high way as well as to take risks. That makes you a conflict resolver. Now, your style of conflict may depend on the situation you're in. So at home, at work, at play, uh, in your marriage, it may be a little bit different. So for example, at home I may be a pleaser on the basketball court. If I don't get my way, I may pout and scream and shout and demand I get the ball back. You fouled me! Give me the ball! Right. So that's a risk taker. I'm willing to forsake the relationship for the sake of getting the ball. Just a silly example. So it's going to depend on the circumstances, but by and large, you are probably one of these. So I ask couples, chart yourself somewhere on here and chart your spouse on here. How do you experience your spouse? And what is your basic mode of conflict resolution? Okay? And you know, sometimes put, some people put themselves on the corner or, well, I'm this, but trying to move this way, or depending on the situation, I'm this. So, what do you think? Any pleasers in the room? Just a couple of us? Okay. Uh, ignorers, low risk takers, low view relationship? Okay, one or two. How about low, uh, high risk taker, low view relationship? No one's willing to admit it. Yeah, what a brave soul. <laughs> How many of you believe that basically by the grace of God you really see yourself as a resolver? You keep the relationship high and you're willing to take risks. Any resolvers in the room by the grace of God? Okay, good, wonderful. Well, it's, it's a little, oh. so, um, so what do you think? Any co comments, thoughts? 
You ever seen anything like this? Isn't it helpful? Because it really teases out what's an issue. Like, the more I care about the relationship, the more likely I am to be a pleaser. The less I care about the relationship, maybe the more willing. Like, if I don't know you, and I don't care what you think of me, the greater risk for me. The more I know you, the more I care for you, to me, that's where I get into my... And this is idolatry here. Well, all of these are idols, except here. Of course, Jesus is the perfect resolver. And in all likelihood, you're in a marriage with a person in a different style than yours, so that together, the Lord is pushing you to be resolvers. And that will happen as long as you believe you are in this, you're in the fight against sin together. You're yoked together, fighting and dwelling sin in each of you together, not as adversaries. The moment you become adversaries, Satan's won. He wants to turn you against each other and become adversaries. No. Lord, you know, honey, you know I'm weak in this. Come in to my junk and help me grow in this area. And she says the same thing to me. And we said this all. Marriage is ultimately about managing sin. Sin's going to show up. How well do you manage it? And the better you manage sin, the less your conflicts are going to get, the better of you. I'm going to move on unless you want to say anything else about our conflict resolution box. <clears throat> okay. D, here's two suggestions. I often give couples, see if you can start and end discussions with prayer. God must win, not me. That is hard to do because oftentimes our conflicts just, they're like, oh, all of a sudden we're having a conflict. You start talking about something and it's a very greased downhill slide into a conflict. All of a sudden you realize, oh, we're, we're, we're disagreeing on this. Or, or you're responding like this. It's sort of in life we respond. So conflict comes on us pretty quickly, obviously. So it's awfully hard to stop and say, hey, Let's ratchet down the emotions. Let's stop and pray. But if you can do that, that's a really good thing. And then the last point on this page is make sure you understand the difference between uh, these three things. Content, what are you over interacting over? Is it a principle or a preference? Are we disagreeing about the color of the carpet or a biblical principle? And sometimes we turn our preferences into principles. No, gray is the only biblical color that's allowed, and here are the reasons why. You need to be able to distinguish between those two things. How you interact, are you really listening for understanding, and why do you want you, what you want? And that's looking at your own motives. In the heat of conflict, it's very often hard to detect your own motives. That's why it's best to begin the day with Jesus and ask him to fill you with his spirit. And ask him, ask him to make you sensitive to what it is you really want. And if you're going into a situation where you think, you know what, my temptation is going to be to do this, this, or this style, ask, did you want to say something? Ask the Lord to give you power and strength to move into the place where you need to be. Did you want to say something? Okay. All right, that's, those are some particulars and some general stuff in marriage. We're going to move on to the next page, if that's okay. Okay, no more conflicts in marriage, right? No. We're constantly going to have conflict. It's a question of how we deal with it. So this is just a couple, some sort of what you might just call sanctified common sense on charitable disagreement. Um, and the verse I have for you there is a situation where uh, Paul's friends were begging him not to go to Jerusalem because 
uh, Agabus had prophesied that at Jerusalem Paul was going to be bound and arrested and they're pleading, don't go, don't go, don't go. And he said, I'm going. So it's a potential conflict. And their response was, well, Lord, will the Lord be done? Okay. So how do we charitably disagree with each other? How do you resolve with love and grace two legitimate missions in conflict? And that's often what our marital conflicts are. You've got a legitimate, I've got a legitimate thought, mission, desire, goal. My wife does. That's what creates the conflict. We've got what we think are two legitimate missions. So here's some basic thoughts. Somebody read number one for us. Okay, I do. Thank you. Slow down. Do you think it's true? We're usually quick to defend ourselves. That was the first thing I think somebody put up here as a as a uh, a way we begin to manage conflict. What does this keep? What does this keep you from doing if you slow down? It keeps you from not listening. Because typically, if we get entrenched in a position. And look, if it's a do-or-die situation, like somebody's running out into the street, you've got to scream. You've got to grab them. There's, you don't have, you don't, is, it, is it he who hesitates is lost, or look before you leave? Well, it depends on the situation, so God needs to give us wisdom. But generally, slow down. Slow down. Do you feel that defensiveness coming up, that defensive, that feeling in you that feels defensive? You know what that is? That feeling? That, do you ever feel that? I do. I know what defensiveness feels like. It's, it's palatable in my soul. Secondly, pray. I want what you, Lord. I want what you want, Lord, not what I want. Always keep the cross in view. What does that do for you? I'm conflicting with somebody about something. I want the cross in view. What does that remind me of? My own sin. I was a stinking rebel, and Jesus died for me, his enemy. That should produce humility. It should produce other-centeredness. It should produce patience, understand. Look how patient God is with you. Stunning. Stunning. So you really, it's really hard to disagree well if you're not in awe of what God has done with his disagreement with you. His disagreement with you is, you've offended my holiness, you deserve to go to hell, and God sent Jesus to hell in your place. That puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? You might hear that again this morning in the sermon. Thirdly, determine to, number one, use your ears twice as much as your mouth. Listen. Ask more questions than make assertions. Find the facts. Confirm impressions. Never assign motive. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Think the best of them. Nobody really wants to be uh, their motives assailed from the beginning. Think the best of people. Again, the grace of God for us is that. Number Gail? All of us ideas about the way that you should, what you mean about questions that are, um, that produce grace in the conversation. Ask questions. Yeah, what kind of, like, can you teach us how to ask those questions the correct way? Okay. Like an example. Okay, let's get some examples of asking questions versus making assertions. Um, Janice has asked me to take the trash out, or do the dishes, or make the bed, or whatever. Do it a small task. And she's gone out. And she comes back two hours later. The task is not done. 
The temptation there is to do what? Why didn't you do that? The trench isn't out. What's, right? it's, it's, it's to look at something that's simple and obvious and just I'm beyond, it's just beyond explanation. So what would be an alternative way to do that that fulfills the spirit of this? <laughs> she takes it out or I take it out. She takes it out. <laughs> and that would just reinforce that what? If I put up with a little bit of hot timber when she comes back, I never have to take out the trash. So that would tell. Yeah. <laughs> Marty, were you going to suggest something? If you're asking about an alternative way to respond, would be to say, what's been going on? Are you okay? Uh, are you crippled? <laughs> In my case, my, my knee's bad. So she might, if she's going to give me the benefit of the doubt, say, honey, is your, is your knee hurting you? I noticed you didn't get downstairs with the trash. And for us, the trash is going from Hatsby to these dumpsters right out here. So I might really have a legitimate reason with my bad knee. But anyway, so to start with thinking the best of me, is, is everything okay? Um, and, you know, gently say, I thought we had a, an agreement that in the two hours I was gone, you will be doing this. So what's been going on? That's just seeking information. It's not accusing me. It's not, what's wrong with you? That's full of accusation. So there's an example. People generally don't like to be accused. Inquisition is fine. Does that make sense? There are questions and there are questions that aren't Yeah, that's good. Marty said there are questions and then there are questions that aren't questions. They're really accusations, aren't they? Does that, does that help, Gail? Okay. Uh, number four, assume you could be wrong. Assume you could be wrong. I've got this firmly, um, this, this uh, I don't know, has anybody changed their doctrine over the years on things? Yeah, I, all of us have probably modified our doctrine on something. When we began the Christian life, we didn't know diddly, right? How could we? We just began the Christian life. So you, you change your views on things, not just doctrine, but the interpretations of biblical text, because you got to, anyway, so life is a matter of holding things somewhat Lightly like this, and like, okay, honestly, when I first heard about this opportunity at Wallace, I said, there's no way I'm going to the D.C. area. I hate traffic. That's what I said. No, no way I'm going. That was my first response. No way. Somebody else do it. Well, here I am. <laughs> so, you know, you got to hold things like this, right? That's just a uh, silly example. So assume you could be wrong. Humbly acknowledge I don't have all the facts. Likely uh, some error in my view. And that's not, not a bad way to start a conflict. Hey, honey, this is what I'm thinking. I, I realize there's probably holes in this argument. I probably don't have anything. Let's enter into a discussion about this. And show me where I might be wrong. What's it taken in my heart to say that? What really must be in my heart? Humility. Humility. And I really have to believe that. You can't put that on as a... Your wife knows you well enough that she'll see that as a false front if you say that. Right? You know what a false front is in golf? You see the green, and it looks like, okay, there it is, and you hit it up there, but the ball lands a little short, and it rolls all the way off here, because there's this, it look, you don't really see this hill in front of the green, and so a lot of us, we hit the ball into the argument, and then all of a sudden the ball is rolling down. What a terrible illustration. But it is the weekend of the U.S. Open, so. <laughs> Assume you could be wrong. In fact, I think I said in a sermon recently, when you are absolutely convinced you're right, you're probably the most dangerous. You might be right, but just ratchet it down. 
Nate? Well, things also may have changed. So sometimes you, there are new facts that are introduced, and that doesn't mean that you're necessarily wrong. You're just not having the whole picture when you decided what you wanted to say. Good. So listening to see if there's new information that could be helpful. Do I have the whole picture? When you enter into a disagreement with your spouse or a friend, do you have the whole picture? Probably not. Probably not. That's what humility says. Let's, let's just make sure we get the whole picture. Again, I, there's no scoreboard in heaven that says, Mike 100, Janice 250. <laughs> there's no scoreboard tallying up who's won all the arguments. I mean, we tend to, if you're a competitive person by nature, I am, you tend to want to win. And uh, this is not what God's plan is in our marriages. He wants humble other-centeredness. Number five, persuade. Talk it through. Lead with questions rather than accusation. Tell me more. Here's some of these questions Gail was looking for. Tell me more. Help me understand your thinking. What's been your experience here? What are some of your assumptions? Allow me to understand your convictions on this. Because all of our positions are based on assumptions and convictions and usually our experiences. Oh, okay, so that's the way you feel about this. Tell me about that. Sometimes there's just nothing to say. One year, it was my wife's birthday. And I know what April 11th is. It's my wife's birthday. Just understand that she's the type that when I get up in the morning of my birthday, the balloons are out, the little thing that says happy birthday is out, something nice is planned. Well, at about 5 o'clock, she's in tears. Guess why? It slipped my mind. That's a major, major no-no for a husband to forget on the day of her birthday, her wife's birthday. Don't make excuses. It was just so bad. Hadn't happened again, because I never want to see my wife crying because I forgot her birthday. There's just no excuses. Cease. There's a time to cease and charitably disagree. Give up the right to be right. Trust. I'll trust your faith and perspective is as valid as mine. I don't understand why you're saying this differently, but I can rest in God's sovereignty. He's working his purposes through the decisions of people. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. I might have to tolerate some ambiguity here. It's just part of life, ambiguity. Seeing things differently. Not having all the light I'd like to have. Marty? I think people are hardwired differently. I think there's some people for whom dealing with ambiguity comes easy. Yes. Part of people are. For other people, dealing with ambiguity is just the way they're sort of hardwired. Marty's saying part of it is some hardwiring. So if you're a more abstract thinker, guess what? You have a higher toleration for ambiguity. Um, my wife's a scientist. What do you think? Probably less, just, you know, and, but she's grown a little more and everything. By nature, scientists hear the facts, boom, black and white, run the experiment, it either is it right. So, but probably for Janice, a little harder to, to um, tolerate ambiguity, just by personality. That's a good point. You, you don't hear me putting her down in that, right? I don't want you to ever hear me publicly put her down. And then six, weight. Maybe, uh, looking back, I'll see more clearly his purposes for this conflict. 
guess what? Take out the maybe. <laughs> in the midst of a conflict, we generally don't see his purposes. We're too ratcheted up. But God will gently and graciously reveal his purposes over time. So don't panic. Don't panic. My obedience to God doesn't depend on understanding his purposes, but rather trust in his control and goodness. The light he gives us in his word is sufficient. What counts is preserving our relationships, not who wins the argument. Christ's mission is greater than our differences. Let's look outward to the needs of others. And then the last page is uh, just another way of saying the same thing. And that is, what are the gospel values that govern our conflict? When you have conflict with another person, let everything you think, say, and do be governed by gospel values. Right? We don't want anything we ever do, think, or say, to not be governed by the gospel. So I've teased out a few values that ought to... So when you're in conflict or you've had a conflict, step back and go, okay, was I missing one or two of these? So, for example, humility, what's the principle? But for the grace of God, I would be worse than you. Somebody sins against you. Do you really believe, but for the grace of God, you'd be worse than that person? Do you believe that? If you do, I was reading Tim Keller's book this weekend, um, The Prodigal God, you know, his book on the uh, parable of the prodigal God with two sons. And he said this, he said this, it's simple but it's profound. That's like everything he writes and says. He says, when you think you're better than somebody, you can't forgive them. When you think you're morally superior to them, it's really hard for you to forgive them. Interesting. No, but for the grace of God, I'd be worse than you. That produces the fruit of gentleness. Gentleness. Charity. You can't assign motives to others. People see issues differently. That produces the fruit of listening before drawing conclusions, thinking the best of the other, and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Objectivity. It's a gospel value. The truth is likely somewhere between us. I've been wrong before. I could be wrong again. I don't know everything. Unless you are an omniscient person, you know everything, it's possible there's some part of your understanding that doesn't comport with the way things are. It's possible. Just hold that possibility. If you think you're right, just hold that with open hands. God may modify that. That bears the fruit of patiently awaiting to all the facts emerge, asking questions, not accusing. Mercy. There shouldn't be an ounce of condemnation in my spirit. Why? Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I extend to you the same grace Jesus gives me. And again, you can't give away what you don't have. If you anticipate conflict on a certain day, all the more reason to go to Jesus in the morning and have your heart filled with his grace, filled with his mercy, filled with his love. And usually conflict resolution attempted without that in our hearts isn't very good. It can get really ugly. In fact, you can tell someone that hadn't spent any time with Jesus in the morning by the way they do conflict. You can pretty much tell. I, that's true for me anyway. Lament. Oh, we're all broken. This grieves the spirit. Christ's mission is larger than our differences. That produces the fruit of let's fix this together for God's glory. And then faith. God ordains conflict for our good. God has an agenda that may not be evident at the moment. That produces the fruit of peace waiting on him. Thoughts, comments, questions as we close?
Ruth? Please. Depending on the relationship, you might find yourself in a different quadrant, ignoring, pleasing, resolving, controlling. Well, I guess you just kind of said that on the back of the work, in the office or in the home. So, anyway, it suddenly was a revelation to me. <laughs> Good. And, you know, are parents, right? You're parents. You, you, you're the authority in the home. The kids aren't. So you have, you have to do... You, your, that relationship demands a certain way of interacting with their kids. There can't be any doubt in their mind, mom and dad represent the authority of God here. And we don't. So that's a very distinct relationship. Okay. Well, we've got a minute to pray. Who, who would, uh, let me ask, maybe I'll ask um, Nate, pray for our meeting after church today. Thank you. Well, we thank this opportunity to talk about um, marriage and our relationships and the way that we act, interact with one another. Uh, we ask that you would take this discussion and write it on our hearts mm-hmm. and help us to uh, do a better job of putting one another first and to uh, encouraging one another and working through differences. So we ask that you be with us at this meeting we have this, uh, this afternoon. We ask that you would see um, uh, fruit of uh, the thoughtful people of taking the time to put into this meeting, and that it would be done in a godly and God-honoring way. Mm-hmm. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So next week, Nate's teaching. The following week, Rock's teaching. I'll be back with you in July.